On the night of June 9th, 1912, eight people were bludgeoned to death in a house in Villisca, Iowa. Although several suspects were named and even put on trial, the case remains unsolved. The Villisca Axe Murder House remains as a tourist attraction, offering tours and overnight stays. Many supernatural events are said to have occurred there over the years, inspiring the 2017 indie horror film The Axe Murderers of Villisca. This is based on a true crime. I'm Chelsea, and I love true crime. Hey, and I'm David, and I love horror movies. And uh, welcome to our first of two planned creepy October episodes. I think this is a story that a lot of people are excited about. This is a, a case that I'm very familiar with. Have you heard of the Velisca Axe murders, David? No, I'd never heard of them before. Yeah, I feel like... Um, this case and the Hinterkaifeck axe murders in Germany. Have you heard of that case? Yes, yes. I have heard that one. So I think they're they're alike in a lot of ways. There's just some really creepy details of the crime that we're going to get into that uh, I think just makes it a little extra spooky. So hopefully we'll be getting you in the mood for the spookiest holiday of the year. Halloween. Yeah. Unless you really don't like your family, then maybe it's Thanksgiving or Christmas. <laughs> oh, yeah. 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 Dinner around the table, Thanksgiving. For us is always fun though, so no problems there. Before we get into it, uh, we did want to shout out our Teaser Tuesday uh, correct guesses, although this was a Teaser Thursday because I dropped the ball. <laughs> but uh, thank you to Lolob underscore zero nine on Instagram, Chippy TFT, of course, on Twitter, and Vicky on Facebook. Yeah, thanks for jumping in and uh, getting those. Those are a lot of fun. I'm always amazed at how quickly all of you um, often will figure out the answer. Yeah, it was really fast, especially considering, you know, I thought it was a little bit harder this time. It was just a picture of the house. It didn't even have a sign out front the way it does now that says Beliska Axe Murder House in <laughs> bloody type font. Yeah, yep. People were feeling it. Oh, yeah. Well, it's it's a popular one. Um, we also have some uh, new reviews, some positive reviews. Yeah, we'll not talk about the negative reviews. <laughs> yeah. Uh, we'd like to thank Kidney Donor Jesus, Cali True Crime Fan, D. Dr. Tessier. Uh, he's also on Twitter. Talked yes. to him a few times. Cool, cool guy. Also, Mad Mass. So thank you so much for taking the time to say some nice things uh, about the show. So shall we dive in? Yeah, let's. Josiah B. Joe Moore was born on December 29th of 1868 in Hanover, Illinois. When he was five months old, his family moved with him to a farm south of Villisca. Now, Villisca is a small rural community in the hills of southwest Iowa. And at the time, it had a population of about 2,500 people due to the presence of a railroad station. Although that number has since dropped down to about 1,200, so they saw a huge drop in population since then. Which... Dropped from a small population to a minuscule population. <laughs> yeah, so less than half that they were at that time. So Joe Moore grew to become one of the most prominent businessmen in Villisca. He was the owner and operator of the Moore Implement Company, which was a John Deere company franchise. On December 6th of 1899, Joe Moore married Sarah Montgomery in her parents' home. 
Sarah was born in Henderson, Illinois on April 17th of 1873. In 1894, she moved to Villisca with her parents and older sister, Mary. Shortly after their marriage, Joe and Sarah moved into a white frame house on a quiet residential street in Villisca. Over the next eight years, the couple had four children, Herman Montgomery, who was born September 2nd of 1900, Mary Catherine, who was born on January the 27th of 1902, Arthur Boyd, who was born March 22nd of 1905, and Paul Vernon, who was born on the 13th of January in 1907. At the time of their deaths, sometime late on June the 9th, in 1912 or in the early hours of June the 10th, Josiah was 43 years old, Sarah was 39, and Herman was just 12, Mary was 10, Arthur was 7, and little Paul was only 5 years old. The family was considered to be affluent and well-liked, and Sarah in particular was active in the local Presbyterian church. During the day of June the 9th, the annual Children's Day program, which Sarah coordinated, took place at the Presbyterian Church. Sarah and Joe attended with all of their children, and also present were sisters, 12-year-old Lena Gertrude and 8-year-old Ina Mae Stillinger. They were the children of Joseph and Sarah Stillinger, who owned a farm outside of Villisca. Lena and Ina had spent the afternoon after that morning's church services with their grandmother, who lived in town, and they were planning to spend the night with her after the Children's Day program ended at 9.30 p.m. However, they were invited to spend the night at the Moore's home by Mary Catherine. Sarah called the girls home to get permission and spoke to their older sister, Blanche, who said that she would pass along the message to their parents. After the day's events finished, the Moore family and Stillinger sisters walked home from church. They got home sometime between 9.45 and 10 p.m. that night. At 5 a.m. the following morning, the Moore's neighbor, Mary Peckham, began to go about her morning rituals, including hanging laundry outside. By 7 a.m., she became suspicious that no one in the Moore household was doing the same. She tried knocking on the door, but got no answer. When she tried the doorknob, she found that it was locked. She called Joe's brother, Ross Moore. He came over and also tried knocking on the door and shouting, but to no avail. Finally, he unlocked the door with his copy of the key and he entered the house while Mary Peckham remained on the porch. Ross went through the parlor and opened the guest bedroom door where he found the bodies of the Stillinger sisters. He immediately left and he told Mary Peckham to call the sheriff, Hank Horton. Once Hank Horton arrived, the upstairs bedrooms were searched and the bodies of Joe, Sarah, and their four children were discovered in their beds. All eight victims had been bludgeoned to death. The murder weapon, found in the downstairs guest bedroom, was an axe belonging to the Moore family. Doctors estimated that the time of death was sometime between midnight and 6 a.m. The police found two spent cigarettes in the attic, suggesting that the killer may have been hiding there when the Moore family got home and waiting there for them to go to bed. They also found a depression in a bale of hay in the barn beside a knothole, indicating that the killer may have been watching the family for a time leading up to the murder. So how creepy is that? That is super creepy. Yeah. And that's something that reminds me a bit of the Hinterkaifeck axe murders because, you know, there's some evidence, some creepy happenings around there in the days leading up that made people suspect that maybe the, the killer had been hiding the house possibly for days before murdering everyone. So it's just, ooh. Ooh, that's really creepy. Yeah. There's one thing worse than a home invasion, which we all know I hate. It's a very slow home invasion. Just get it over with. So police believe that after sneaking down from the attic, 
The killer took the chimney off of an oil lamp and bent the wick to keep the flame low. And they took this to light their way as they entered the master bedroom first. That's where Joe and Sarah were asleep. Joe was the only victim that was killed with the blade of the axe. All of the other victims were bludgeoned with the blunt side. Uh, Joe was also hit more times than any other victim. The ceiling in the master bedroom and in the rooms belonging to the children actually had gouge marks in it from the axe being swung overhead. After killing the children in the same manner as their mother, the killer apparently returned to the master bedroom to strike Joe and Sarah with additional blows. And the evidence for this was that apparently a shoe that had been next to the bed filled with blood after the first round of attacks and the killer went back and apparently knocked it over and spilled the blood out. So oh, what a visual. Early, yeah, early forensics there. Yes. Yes. So finally, the killer went downstairs to the guest bedroom and murdered the Stillinger sisters. 12-year-old Lena was the only one of the eight victims who showed signs of waking up and fighting for her life as she appeared to have defensive wounds on her arms. There was also some indication that she may have been sexually assaulted since her underwear was missing, but the coroner did not find evidence that she had been raped. Well, there were a number of very odd things about the crime scene noted by investigators. The first was that the curtains were drawn on all of the windows in the house which had them, and the two windows that didn't have curtains were covered with clothing. The mirrors around the home were also covered. The bedding was pulled up over the faces on all of the victims. The killer had attempted to wipe some of the blood off of the axe, which was found in the guest bedroom close to a broken piece of a keychain. There was also a two-pound slab of bacon on the floor close to the axe, and it had apparently been taken from the icebox. There was a pan of bloody water in the kitchen where the killer had washed off, and there was a plate of uneaten food on the table. All of the doors were locked. No fingerprints were found at the scene, although this may have been due in part to mismanagement by police. Word of the murders quickly spread through the town, and it was estimated that before the Velisca National Guard arrived to secure the house at noon, nearly 100 onlookers were able to file through the house and view the bodies. Some people even took fragments of Josiah Moore's skull from the scene as a keepsake. Isn't that messed up? I feel like I'm, I'm a pretty morbid person. I'm into the creepy stuff. But I would never. That's creepy. That's, Imagine having ah. that like in your family, like your family heirloom from your uh, grandparents or great grandparents. So here's a piece of Josiah Moore's skull. Yeah. Ooh. 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 Yeah. Ooh. That's gnarly. Well, bloodhounds were used to try to follow the trail of the killer, but it was to no avail. Because Velisca was home to a train depot, law enforcement felt that the killer was likely to be a stranger just passing through town. But that didn't stop rumors from circulating that implicated a number of town residents. One such suspect was Iowa State Senator Frank Jones. Frank had employed Joe prior to him starting his John Deere franchise, and their relationship had soured once Joe left to start his own business. There were also rumors that Joe was having an affair with Frank Jones' daughter-in-law, Donna. Jones was subject to a grand jury investigation, but things took a turn with the introduction of a new suspect. William Mansfield. Two years after the Velisca crimes, Mansfield was suspected of killing his wife, infant child, and parents-in-law with an axe in a very similar manner, which included covering mirrors in the house and removing the chimney from oil lamps. He was also suspected to be responsible for similar axe murders in Illinois and Paola, Kansas. Both locations were accessible by train, just like Velisca. 
Police theorized that Jones hired Mansfield to kill the Moors, and in 1916, Mansfield was arrested and brought to Montgomery County to be tried. The case fell apart, however, when payroll records proved that he was in Illinois at the time of the murders. Mansfield was released and later sued the detective who pushed this theory, James Newton Wilkerson, winning $2,225. However, Wilkerson continued to believe that Mansfield was the culprit and that Jones had used his considerable power to protect Mansfield and shift blame to another suspect, Reverend Lynn George Jacqueline Kelly. Reverend Kelly was a traveling Presbyterian preacher who was passing through town and even taught at the Children's Day celebration. He had been caught peeping in windows around town a few days before the murders, and he had apparently asked some young women and girls to pose nude for him. He left town around 5 a.m. on June 10th and had supposedly sent bloody clothing to the laundry in nearby Macedonia shortly afterwards. He was fascinated with the murders, and he wrote to both the police and the family of the victims. He also tried to pose as a Scotland Yard detective to get a tour of the crime scene. That's very bizarre. Well, in 1914, Reverend Kelly was arrested for mailing obscene material to a woman who applied to be his secretary, and he was sent to St. Elizabeth's Hospital, a mental hospital in Washington, D.C., So clearly there were other things going on with him other than harassing women. I think he had some mental health issues. Police began to suspect that he was involved in the Velisca murders due to his obsession with the case. They asked him for details about the murders, which he provided at length, although police were unsure whether he had actually experienced them or if he was just making them up due to these mental health issues that he was struggling with. Finally, though, in 1917, he was arrested for the murders. Police obtained a confession from him after many hours of interrogation. <laughs> Can't really trust those. Right. I know that now. Um, so his confession read in part, quote, I killed the children upstairs first and the children downstairs last. I knew God wanted me to do it this way. Slay utterly came to my mind and I picked up the axe and went into the house and killed them. Kelly later recanted and claimed that the confession was given under duress due to police brutality. He was still indicted by the grand jury, but after two separate trials, he was acquitted of all charges. Um, So the last suspect that I want to discuss uh, just briefly is Henry Lee Moore, who has no relation to the Moore family. Uh, Moore was a suspected serial killer who was prosecuted in December of 1912, so just a couple months after the Moore family murders. Uh, for the murder of his mother, Georgia Moore, and his grandmother, Mary Wilson, in Columbia, Missouri. Um, And he did this apparently in order to obtain the deeds for their house. The two had been beaten with the blunt side of an axe, so very similar to the Villisca murders. Although he was never convicted on any other charges, he was suspected of being the culprit in a string of axe murders across the Midwest, including a few murders that investigators had tried to link to Mansfield. Oh, interesting. Yeah, so these murders included the murder of Archie Cobble and his wife on July 14th, 1911 in Rainier, Washington. The killing of six victims in a home in Colorado Springs, including H.C. Wayne, his wife and child, um, as well as Mrs. A.J. Burnham and her children. And that was in September of 1911. The following month, uh, three members of the Doosan family were killed in Monmouth, Illinois. And all five members of the Showman family were killed in Ellsworth, Kansas. On June 5th of 1912, just four days before the Velisca murders, Rollin Hudson and his wife were murdered in Paola, Kansas. 
There were at least 10 cases of these axe murders that were linked together due to the similarities in the MO. In four of the cases, that's the one in uh, Paolo, Kansas, Villisca, Rainier, and then a single homicide in Mount Pleasant, Iowa. The killer covered the victim's faces. In at least five of the cases, the killer lingered in the home after the murder. These cases were also similar because they were all committed near railway tracks. And the string of murders seemed to begin after Moore was released from the Kansas State Reformatory on April 11th of 1911. And it stopped after his arrest for the murder of his mother and grandmother. So coincidence? Maybe. (laughs) The problem is that there is actually no direct evidence tying Moore to any of these cases. He was never tried for any additional crimes other than the murder of his mother and grandmother. And I think that... Even though that was committed in a similar fashion, you know, with the blunt side of an axe, you know, he he had a financial motivation for doing it. Whereas this other string of random crimes, you know, was clearly committed by someone who was just killing for the sake of killing. Yeah. It's kind of, I think, hard to use that as it's almost more evidence that he's maybe not guilty than evidence that he's guilty. So he was sentenced to life in prison, but he was released in 1949 and his current whereabouts are unknown. But he's probably dead or else he would be 144 years old. Oh, that's damn old. Yeah. Yeah. So the Velisca house was purchased for the first time after the murders in 1915 by J.H. Giesman. And it had seven more owners over the next 90 years until finally it was purchased by Rick and Vicki Sprague in January of 1994. A few months later, Darwin Lynn, the owner of the Olson Lynn Museum in downtown Villisca, was approached by a real estate agent. The agent told Lynn that if he did not purchase the house, it was in danger of being torn down. Lynn gave a lowball offer on the house and was surprised when the owners accepted. In late 1994, Lynn began the arduous task of restoring the house to the condition that it had been in 1912. Previous owners had significantly remodeled in the intervening years, and Lynn set about removing the vinyl siding and porch enclosures, and even added an outhouse and a chicken coop, and used testimonies from the coroner's inquest to ascertain furniture placement. In 1998, the home was added to the National Register of Historic Places. The Lynns began offering tours of the house, and in the early 2000s, they opened the doors to overnight guests. Many of the ghost hunters and paranormal enthusiasts who have taken these tours claim to have supernatural experiences, including hearing children's voices and laughter when no children were present, collecting mysterious audio, video, and photographic evidence, and seeing objects move or fall down of their own accord. In 2009, the American Paranormal Research Association, known as uh, APRA, investigated the Velisca axe murder house. Brandon Alvis, the founder of APRA, led the research team. He called the case the most emotional investigation he had ever conducted. They recorded electronic voice phenomenon, known as EVP, in the early morning hours when no investigator was present at the house. When they played the tapes back, what they heard shocked the crew. In some tapes, they could hear screaming. In another, they heard a voice saying, Please don't. What are you doing to me? Super creepy. Yeah, and that audio is available on YouTube, so I recommend you guys check it out because it's pretty creepy. Well, on November the 7th of 2014, Robert Stephen Lorson Jr., age 37, arrived at the house from Rhinelander, Wisconsin. He came with a group of friends to do some recreational paranormal investigating overnight, as you do. His friends were outside while he was in the Northwest bedroom when he called them and said he needed help. 
They found him upstairs with a self-inflicted stab wound to the chest. He was rushed to the hospital and recovered from his injuries, but he refused to comment further on what happened to him inside the house. However, according to police reports, the incident happened at 12.45 a.m., around when the murders are believed to have taken place. Oh my goodness, it gives me goosebumps. Ooh, yeah. Yeah. Spooky. Yeah, that story really creeps me out. I think especially because this guy really fell off the radar after it happened. You'd think if it was a hoax, you know, he would try to capitalize on all of the attention. And it, it did get a fair amount of attention, but... Uh, yeah, his lips are sealed. I guess we'll just have to go to the house and see for ourselves, David. <laughs> yeah, around uh, like 12.30 a.m., get there yeah. and wait that 15 minutes. Perfect. Mm-hmm. Yep, sounds yeah. good to me. Uh, yeah, no sharp objects. Wrap wrap each other in bubble tape. Bubble tape? Bubble wrap. Whatever. Just uh, be like Bubble Boy, a giant hamster wheel bubble. <laughs> um Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. So yeah, in terms of discussion questions, I did want to get your opinion, David, on uh, what you think of the the suspects that we went over. Do you think uh, there's one that's more viable than the others? Gosh, it seems like axe murders were really the way to kill a bunch of people back then. Uh. It's true. And there are a lot of theories out there that I I didn't get into because I think they are pretty far-fetched, but theories that the Velisca axe murders were committed by, you know, the Axeman of New Orleans or actually the, maybe the same person who um, committed the Hinterkaifeck killing. Well, I am really... Jack the Ripper. Oh, I'm really interested in this, uh, the state senator, um, Senator Jones, because it seems like the investigation got cut short once they had the suspect of William Mansfield. So when, when he came up, I feel like they kind of just dropped that thread altogether, and he did have that grudge. Yeah, and it seems like he was maybe the only person around town, at least, you know, that's still remembered in the history books as having a grudge against, you know, at least Joe Moore, if not the family, you know, because they were very well-liked and well-respected. But it seems like a quite uh, a lot to kill an entire family because you know your underling started his own business i don't know that old timey like, revenge but like a five-year-old and a seven-year-old well the affair too that part yeah i do kind of wonder about that though because i feel like while it might have been a, a rumor i would think that if it was true we would know it all right, right? that's fair yeah yeah I how about know. you what do you think i do kind of agree that the murder of joe moore seemed to be personal the fact that he was hit so many more times, the fact that he was the only one who was struck with the blade of the axe and everyone else was hit with the the blunt side of the axe. But I also kind of feel like because Joe Moore was you know, the only man in the house and he maybe posed the most threat to the killer. If they're already planning to. Exactly. I feel like there might be this fear that if you, you know, hit him once with the blunt side, he's going to wake up and overpower and and kill this person. Um, What's interesting is I did read, I thought it was so weird that this person was using the blunt side of the axe to like kill people. To me, that made 
no sense. But apparently I'm just a very inexperienced non-axe murderer because (laughs) it happens a lot. Apparently people knew to do this because if you hit them with the sharp blade, it can get stuck. That makes sense. I've, uh, is that the same? Chop wood? Did some wood chopping. Yeah. Did some wood chopping. Yeah. Yeah. And sometimes it gets stuck in and then you're like, you have to use both feet or whatever to get it out of the log. So I could imagine. Ooh, Yeah. Yeah. I like it in a movie when that happens, though. It's nice and dramatic. It is pretty dramatic, and it's definitely happened in, in quite a few horror movies. But, um, but yeah, I, th- I thought that was pretty interesting. I do feel like there is a connection between this case and at least a few of those others. I think covering mirrors with cloth, I think what the killer did with that lamp, the fact that things like that happened at other crime scenes to me like screams serial killer you know i'm not confident it's either of the two people that were suspected i kind of feel like it could have been anyone and it does seem to be tied to the the railroad tracks and talk about a means of escape too yeah wow yeah that's fascinating or was it a ghost i don't don't know well according to the movie it was a demon right (laughs) yes actually the movie decided that it was reverend kelly but he was possessed by a demon and so was i think Lena, the older Stillinger girl. I don't. I found the movie to be very confusing, but we'll we'll get into that in a minute. <laughs> um, yeah, we'll be. Yeah. A, we'll we'll yeah. have a nice confusing segment on the movie. Yeah. When we jump over. But yeah, I, th- I think that this case is absolutely, you know, fascinating. I love reading about older crimes. You know, there are elements of it. You know, the mirrors being covered, the faces being covered, the fact that he stayed in the house afterwards and for some reason pulled a slab of bacon out of the freezer. You know, it's those those creepy little details that just, I think, really stick with a lot of people who've read about this case. And I will say that's part of the reason I had pretty high hopes for a horror movie, especially a supernatural horror movie uh, based on this. <laughs> um, and we'll talk about whether my hopes were met in a minute, but they weren't. <laughs> um, and uh yeah my sources were velliscaiowa.com so you could read all about the tours offered of the axe murder house also smithsonianmag.com had a great article called the axe murderer who got away and then vice.com had an article why did a ghost hunter stab himself inside a famous axe murder house what a headline i love that yep all right. Well, we're going to flip over to the film, The Axe Murders of Villisca, here in a second. So sit tight. We'll be right back. Today is a pretty exciting day for me. We will be visiting the Velisca Axe Murder House. Where are we going exactly? Velisca? <laughs> We're ghost hunters. Ghost. Hunt ghosts! Welcome to the Velisca Axe Murder House. This way. Eight people, six of them kids, got their heads smashed in in 1912. Toads cray balls. They caught the killer, right? No. Tour was kind of lame. These things are all hype anyways. No, we just didn't see the whole thing. Maybe we could take our own tour later tonight. Follow me. 
Hey, let's take a picture. What was that? What happened? What are you doing with a machete? Nothing is safe. What do you do? Take this! This is in you! If I get murdered, it's totally your fault. Oh, please. Nothing ever happens in Iowa. And we're back. When three teens are abruptly kicked out of the house where a series of mysterious axe murders occurred, they decide to break in at night and finish the tour on their own. However, when darkness falls, they get more than they bargained for as they get possessed one by one. Will they survive the night, or will the ghostly force that may have caused the axe murders in the first place claim another set of victims? This is the axe murders of Velisca. And I just want to preface this portion of the episode by acknowledging that this is an indie film, has a small cast. I think what they were doing were very ambitious. So I'm going to soften soften everybody up before we uh, give it kind of a little bit of a critique because I think neither Chelsea nor myself were super into the movie. But it certainly is ambitious. And it's also available on Netflix, right? It is, so yeah. That's always a bonus for me. You get points for having us not have to pay $6 for your movie. <laughs> yeah, I love it. love investing in filmmakers and film, but in this case, um, I had not even heard of the incident itself. So going in completely cold, having no knowledge of the um, the actual murders themselves or you know the house, it was an interesting experience being exposed to all that. And this film was written by Kevin Abrams, and Owen Egerton. And actually, this was funny because we were going through our list of Halloween movies for October, and um, I had heard on Shockwaves they had mentioned the movie Bloodfest, talking about Hellfest coming out and then Bloodfest being kind of a funny version of that. And he uh, wrote that movie as well. Oh, cool. Yep. Yeah, I'm, I'm really excited to see Bloodfest. The trailer is so amusing. Yeah, it looks yeah. really funny. And then also written by Tony E. Valenzuela, who is the director. And um, this is her, his first feature film. He is the creator of Black Box TV Presents, which is a short form horror video series on YouTube. And it has a ton of followers. So you may want to check them out and uh, see some of his work and some of the other stuff that they're doing, because there's some, you know, things that are seem inspired by the Twilight Zone and, and other horror short films that you may be into. So be sure to look up Black Box TV in 2008, Tony wrote and directed 2009 A True Story. It was a 13-episode dystopian web series, and it was nominated for Best Dramatic Web Series at the first annual Streamy Awards, and was featured by director Wes Craven during his Halloween 2008 YouTube takeover. Oh, Wes Craven. Wes Craven, director of A Nightmare on Elm Street. Yep, got your reference in. Ah, yeah. I've never heard of the Streamy Awards. The cast, as I mentioned, uh, this being an indie film, is very tight-knit and relatively small. And I just want to kind of um, you know, give a little background on the four main leads, really. Robert Adamson, who plays Caleb. And it, I was really impressed by his credentials because he's in over 250 episodes of The Young and the Restless. 
must have been very young when he was on that show because he's pretty young in this movie. He is, yeah. He was in over 40 episodes of the series Lincoln Heights. And I had personally not heard of Lincoln Heights, but it is about a family that moves to a crime-filled area of the Heights and tries to help the community and the convicts who live there. So I'd never heard of it either. Yeah, so he, he has done a, a ton of serialized work. Jared Sleeper plays Denny, and Denny has ties to Black Box TV. He was in the fourth door uh, TV, which is the story of one woman's journey when a young boy named Colin that she protects as they navigate the strange and dangerous world of limbo. On this journey... Lane must confront memories and monstrous fears to save herself and the man she loves. So genre stuff again, which is cool. Alex Franca plays Jess. She is the lead in Vanity. And this is described as a teenage girl who infiltrates a high-paced world of New York's fashion elite to uncover the truth behind her mother's death. And the in-betweeners, which I have heard of. I've never seen it. I've seen it. Yeah. All right. It's good. It's really funny. Yeah, cool. Well, that's four high school friends who are not cool or popular, but they're not total dorks either is kind of the, the log line for that. And then, of course, we have Reverend Kelly is played by Sean Whalen. He looks super familiar to me. And uh, even in some some of the stills before we watched the movie, I was like, oh, who is that guy? I looked him up. He is in Kevin Costner's Waterworld. He is in Batman Returns, my favorite personal Batman movie. He's been in episodes of Cold Case, Young and the Restless, just like Robert Adamson. He's in Rob Zombie's Halloween 2, which seems like everyone's in Halloween 2. He's in Hatchet 3, and he is in Death House, which I'm pretty excited about. It's finally coming out in November, and that's described as the Expendables of Horror. So it's Kane Hodder and just a, a bunch of horror icons are all in it. In it. Is Robert Englund going to be in it? Mm, oh, good question. I don't remember if I saw him listed or not. He should be, but... That'd be awesome. Yeah, that'd be fun. Um, so yeah, so, you know, that's uh, kind of the main cast and the directors and the writer. So um, yeah, and they put together this movie. So before we dig into just a little bit of the trivia, I kind of wanted to just get into what we both thought about the movie and Chelsea after like the research and, and knowing about this, you know, awful murder case, how did the, the movie affect you? I will say that unlike something like, um, we really got into it talking about the exorcism of Emily Rose, right? Where it's taking a, a crime and turning it into something supernatural. And I do think that actually in this case, I was totally fine with the supernatural aspect you know, this is a really creepy, unsolved crime. You know, it's most likely not going to be solved. It's been more than 100 years. Yeah. Um, yeah, so like I, I knew going into it that, you know, their demonic possession was involved. And I was like, sign me up. I thought the movie, you know, started out pretty good. It's It's a little bit cliche, but, you know, it's three friends with, Everyone has their own dark past and their own problems and they, you know, wind up in this creepy house, you know, overnight and uh, then everything goes south. And I was following the movie. I was following it. I was following it. And then suddenly all three of them were possessed. I had no clue what was going on. Possession just seemed like a weird excuse for everyone to make out with each other. And I, it just it completely lost me. I, I honestly don't even really know how things were resolved. And I, I watched it. Yeah. And yeah. I still don't really get it. And I think that it was just kind of disappointing. I think that there was a lot to 
work with. And this is not something that, you know, you could chalk up to the budgetary constraints of, you know, an indie film. It just, I think, was poor writing. Sorry. Hopefully, uh, Bloodfest is better. What did what did you think? I think maybe what I was hoping for was a little bit more of a, a period piece. And what you get is this. It reminded me just a little bit of like a setup, sort of a Night of the Demon setup, where it's like the house once it has you slowly takes takes you out one by one but in this case yeah you're right it's like when they all become possessed and they're kind of i think they're pushing is it denny i think they're pushing denny to like kill himself at one point yeah but then because caleb and jess seem to have a little bit of a spark the demon is kind of fighting with and playing with their relationship and interest in each other and i think it just got really muddled in that case And i feel like that's so pivotal for the movie and that like you know i think caleb at one point does shake off the the possession of being possessed he like sees himself in a mirror and they have that maybe that's the mirror connection yeah yeah i think they they did try to add that um i think it was it was caleb and jess were both possessed and her possessed was telling him possessed to kill her and i guess they're saying that that's what happened with reverend kelly and lena and she had like let him into the house and they were maybe having some kind of like sexual affair it was so confusing yeah yeah and um i did i thought the their eyes going black was kind of cool that was a neat look. supernatural did it first and they did <laughs> yeah, it oh, better yeah. yeah we were talking about the whole like do your eyes go black or do you go your eyes go white when you're possessed because that would be you're a dead-eyed at that point that's also in supernatural but that's like the real high level demons oh, that's like yeah. lilith her eyes turn white oh you're oh yeah that's right i was just thinking of everyone's eyes going black either that or they're aliens like in the x-files Ooh. Do, 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 do. the alien axe murders of Velisca. that there, so there are these these two antagonists who are sort of the school bullies i think one of them had been dating jess and then he was uh a real asshole and they like she just breaks up with him before they go and tour the house well he also shared a video around the school of you know them having sex so he's basically the worst yeah but don't worry he gets it he gets it yeah but i kind of thought okay so he's the one that's possessed by the demons and now he's going to hunt down everyone else and it's like no literally everyone is possessed by the demon yeah it's like a big demon orgy yeah i mean there's no orgy in it but Mm. uh yeah that the characters didn't try (laughs) making out left and right yeah it's true um and i don't you know not to rewrite a movie i just think probably one of the things that i would like more is simplify that whole possession aspect of it you know, the Reverend Kelly flashbacks were, were totally fine. I thought that Sean Whalen did a great job of kind of playing a, an old-timey dude. And, you know, that was, that was creepy. But, yeah, it was just it's just too a bit too complicated. I think the, the murders themselves and the fact that it's an entire family that got ex-murdered in this house was a big enough thing. Other, other than that, just, just to wrap up my, my thoughts on the movie, was that I did like the fact that there were ongoing tours of the house so it was like you you could see that part happening in real life and then something happens where just sees some sort of mysterious phenomenon happen and she kind of goes past the border the barrier of where they want you to go and that's what instigates them getting kicked out yeah i think it was like she heard the record playing maybe oh you're right it's yep. like creepy ghost record playing yeah i don't know where the woman came from there was like a woman who kicked who was like get out of here i don't and know I if like, she was married to the guy who's giving the tour if there's just be like the couple that owns the the house maybe i feel like there's a good movie in this case somewhere at the heart of this true crime case 
there is a really good creepy horror movie waiting to be made and it's still waiting to be made yeah less blue color time stuff too yeah. too much of that too much of that but um all right well it turns out that this was a pretty big success in mexico which it played in over 29 cities and uh, i thought that was really interesting and i don't know if it was the way it was marketed or what but it was, you know, very successful there. And then finding uh, life on Netflix has probably given it, a, you know, a lot of, of viewers, a lot of people who have been able to check it out after yeah. that. And I will say, if you're curious about this movie, watch it. Don't say we didn't warn you, but it's definitely worth watching for zero money if you have a Netflix subscription. Yeah, just know it's, you know, it's big on the demon. It's big on, it's all contemporary with a little bit of flashbacks, but I'm, I'm really fascinated by, and this often happens in the middle of a show where I'm like, oh, wow, wow, the, oh my God, the actual story is, has made my opinion of the movie even worse. I'm so sorry. Just like you guys witnessed with Bernie. It's like, uh the movie unfolding behind be, in front of your eye your ears i suddenly turn on the movie yeah i have had a little bit of feedback um from people being like oh man kind of ruined the movie it's like oops sorry yep. i only speak the truth that's what we're here for based on a true crime yep uh there's one tagline okay in 1912 eight people were brutally murdered in their house this house you know, I actually think that's totally fine. Solid tagline. It gives the Villisca house a lot of menace. Yeah, definitely. And I think it's, I really like that, you know, they tied in the fact that this house is now a tourist attraction. People pay money to tour this murder house. I would do it if uh, I'm ever up that way. Uh, yeah, no, I, I do like that. And I like that that's part of the movie. Yeah, right on. Well, cool. Well, that's The Axe Murders of Villisca. Go on to Netflix, search it out, and add it to your queue. All right. So as we uh, wind down this episode, and it's October, one of the things that uh, Chelsea and I do, because we're, uh, I guess we're horror movie snobs, right? Is that, you know, we talk about this a lot. And because we do watch horror movies throughout the year, and our library is kind of big, it's nice to take October and really focus on the um, horror movies that are themed around the holiday the holiday itself of halloween and that includes you know tv shows and movies that were made for tv and the garfield halloween special boo and a lot of other stuff so our calendar is always pretty full and uh, we'll have to share that a little bit of that with you guys at some point i think we did that last year yes and i think my list hasn't changed much there are a few movies that you know we've watched that i think are definitely up there on my list of you know halloween movies that i really love i don't think anything snuck into the top five which is what we posted last year i think we should probably repost that also yeah i think that would be great i i definitely um think that that's a wonderful idea and you know something that you know if you're catching this episode it's not too late just a couple off the top of my head the midnight hour it was a made for tv movie it's really fun it's very halloweeny it was a lot of fun it might be hard for people to get a hold of it might be yeah oh I what was so. the scarecrow one we watched recently the dark night of the scarecrow dark night of the scarecrow yes that's available from scream factory i believe so yeah there's, there's a, a couple discs out there of that that was a some some creepy parts in that one yeah that i liked Absolutely. The fun thing is there are like three movies that have trick and treat in them. Um, so you don't want to mix those up. But of course, everyone knows trick or treat, which is the anthology, you know, it's Michael Doherty film. With Sam. 
Yes, with Sam. But there's also Trick or Treat. And then there's... Is that this Trick or Treat summoning the rock star? Yes. I yeah. loved that. So Last fun. year, I think, was the first time that, that we watched it. That's very close to my top five. Um, that was a lot of fun. Yeah, and we have the Blu-ray of that. That was kind of hard to track down. And then there's Trick or Treats, which I've not seen. We're going to watch it. It's on Amazon Prime, though, streaming. So, And then, of course, there's everything else like Murder Party. And what I'm saying is there's no shortage of spooky movies that take place around and Halloween holiday itself being the theme of it. So Yeah. And speaking of that, let's talk about our now playing. Chelsea, what have you got? Yeah, speaking of movies that take place around Halloween, we were both really excited for this to come out and hit hit Hulu. Uh, so Hulu has a new, I guess you could call it an anthology series. So I think every, is it every month for the next year? They're releasing essentially a full length feature film that's a horror movie. So the one for October was of course Halloween themed and it's called The Body. So I don't want to spoil anything because it's, it's a lot of fun and there are some twists and turns and it is, you know, it does take place on Halloween, but it's about an assassin who is, you know, moving the the body of his victim through town on Halloween and he, you know, wraps it up and acts like it's it's part of the costume and hijinks ensue. But <laughs> that kind of makes it sound like a comedy and it is. Well, if it's a comedy, it's a very, very dark comedy. <laughs> yeah, I liked it a lot. Oh, nice. That yeah. was really fun. I think it'll be appealing to the the true crime people out there because you know, it's about murder and a murderer, but it's also about Halloween. Yeah. And I mean, other than not a spoiler, but to set expectations, they managed to do it without it being supernatural. Yes. Yes. It's not supernatural. And it's a lot of fun. I mean, Murder Party is one of my favorite Halloween movies of all time. And I think this had a, a pretty similar vibe. Oh, yeah. That'd be a fun double feature, yeah. maybe. The ending was not perfect, but it was good. I liked it a lot. Excellent. So what's your now playing? Well, my now playing is going to bleed into the coming soon, but I will not mention the coming soon, but you can probably guess what it is. And that's, um, so I just got done with the Halloween 40 years of terror horror con in Pasadena, California, where Lab Creature had a booth there. And uh, that was a lot of fun. Sold a bunch of spooky art and weird cat art to the folks of the area. Uh, I was set up on Celebrity Row. So yeah, this is just uh, quite an adventure. Uh, went on a, a location tour on the bus through Horrors Hollowed Grounds. And then leading up to that, I've been watching sort of very, very random, not in any particular order, the Halloween movies, waiting not watching the 1978 John Carpenter original or part two or part three because we're saving part three for Halloween night. And actually, as soon as we're done recording, so by the time you listen to this, we will have already watched the original uh, 78 version. I think we're going to probably skip part two because, well, tomorrow night or the next night, we're going to see Halloween 2018. I'm so excited. It's been getting such good reviews. I I hope my hopes aren't too high, but they might be a little high. (laughs) Yeah, it's all right. Um, all right, so I already gave away my, away my coming soon. So Chelsea, do you have something coming up that uh, you want to mention to our listeners? I'm very excited to watch The Haunting of Hill House. Uh, quite a few members of our um, cult of Based on a True Crime on Facebook have been posting about how good it is and how much they love it and how they cried at the ending. And I just, I'm I'm so excited. I know that we might end up not watching it until after Halloween. I think our schedule is so full of watching the Halloween movies. You know, it'll it'll be a nice spooky thing to watch afterwards. 
um, since we do watch our horror movies year round. Uh, but I'm I'm really excited for that. I'm really excited for Sabrina coming out October 26th. The trailers look awesome. I spent the whole weekend watching old Sabrina <laughs> to get pumped up for it. I, I do like that show, even though I know that the tone's a little bit different. But um, we saw a trailer for a movie on Netflix called Malevolent that looks cool. And it, you know, it's kind of about a spooky house and a medium, a ghost medium who's maybe not real but then real things start happening netflix is just killing it recently <laughs> yeah it's yeah. pretty wild there's too much too much giving us too much so much genre stuff it's man it is it is a treat so there's not enough time to watch all the things that i want to watch but uh well right on you know it is october so happy halloween everyone love this month it's a lot of fun seeing what everyone is up to and uh as we wrap up the episode just wanted to uh, remind you all of our social media presence we are on instagram at based on true crime we're on twitter at true crime based we are on Facebook at Based on True Crime Podcast, but most importantly, please go there and join our group, The Cult of Based on a True Crime. That's where uh, you'll get a lot of great interaction from, well, everyone, I guess, who listens to this show. We love everybody over there. We have a Patreon where we have one exclusive episode. It's a full episode that you can't get anywhere else per month. As low as a dollar, you can get that episode on your own private feed yeah and we're gonna have a nice halloweeny one this time so it looks like it's a close race between trick or treat and Candyman. so we'll see what wins yep right on and we are members of the murderly network which is full of true crime based podcasts so check them out as well if you would like to see my art and what I'm up to, spooky things, kitty cat things, weird things, check out at Lab Creature on Instagram. Our podcast theme and supporting music was composed and performed by Nico Batiste of We Talk of Dreams, and we just love him so much. We love our theme. He is a fantastic musician and can be found on Twitter at We Talk of Dreams, the website wetalkofdreams.com, and of course on Instagram at We Talk of Dreams. So thank you so much, Nico, for being such a creative musician. It's the spooky season. The weather is getting cold and the nights are getting longer. We already had snow here. So Merry Christmas, everyone. Yes, we uh, have spooky things hanging on our door. And speaking of doors, death is but a door. And time is but a window. We'll be back. Ah, ah, ah. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.